Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to continue on in our study, working verse by verse through this, uh, this letter, this epistle that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And uh, this morning, I just want to speak on the simple subject of shining as lights. That's where we come in the text here in verses 14 through 18. We see him actually call the Philippians to shine as lights. And, you know, when you think about shining as lights, I don't know about you, but I immediately begin to think about the stars and being outside. There's really nothing uh, as exquisite or beautiful like the night sky. I mean, whether it's the twinkling of the distant stars or, or maybe looking at some constellations and how they form and, and you're trying to pick them out and, and just seeing their brilliance or maybe it's on those really, really dark nights when the moon is close and you feel like you've got a, a, a lesser sun out there. We In our bedroom, Karen and I's bedroom, we've got these long, narrow windows right above our bed and there is a lot of nights during the year, if the moon is full and bright, that it literally shines through the window and kind of right on my eyes where I'm at. It's like I'm going to sleep with the sun in my face. But it's beautiful. I, I love to look up at the moon when it's full and close and big, and, and I've always thought it kind of looked like a, a rabbit up there, uh, the way it is, and you probably know what I'm talking about. But it's amazing to gaze up at the moon in all of its brilliance. Now, when you think about that, the moon's out during the day a lot as well. What's the difference there? I mean, we look at the moon when it's big and, and it's, it's white. It's during the daytime and you can see it. But I don't know about you, but I've never just stood in the middle of the day thinking, man, that is a wonderful, beautiful moon. No, it's always at night. Why? It's because it's contrasted against the backdrop of the darkness, the backdrop of the dark space that is out there. And so it shines gloriously on the canvas of the darkness of space. And so as we come to Philippians chapter 2, in a very similar way, we see here that Christians are to shine as lights against the backdrop of the dark world in which we live. Charles Spurgeon once said, I would not give much for your religion unless it can be seen. He says, lamps do not talk, but they do shine. Right? I mean, we as Christians, we're going to see here in this text that we are called to shine as lights. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what Spurgeon is saying here is, is that our orthodoxy ought to match our orthopraxy. In other words, our right doctrine, our right beliefs ought to be coupled with right living. The two should go hand in hand. We shouldn't say one thing and live another way. That's called hypocrisy. That's what devalues our witness. So we need to believe right, but we also need to live right. And so having told the Philippian believers to passionately work out the salvation that God has worked in them, those two verses we looked at last Sunday, Paul then goes on to spell out how this could be done. Practical Christianity, we're going to see here, even becomes more practical. He's going to touch on an issue that I guarantee you most, if not all of us, have struggled with this week. You go ahead and look, look forward a little bit and you'll see what I'm talking about in verse 14. So if the unbelieving world is to see the outworking of the already inward salvation in our lives, it's necessary that believers affirm and simulate the Word of God in how they live and how they flesh that out, how they work that out in their lives. So the light of the gospel is to be lived out in contrast to the darkness that is around them in this world. Look what he says in Philippians chapter 2. 
Yes, I am apprehensive and uptight about wearing glasses when I read my Bible. It's the first time in here I've done it. I've done it in some smaller settings. I'm getting old. <laughs> about th what, two, three months ago, I had to buy readers. It was a sad day in my life. <laughs> I wear contacts. I've worn glasses or contacts for like 20 years. Now I have to wear them a second pair to read. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What does it look like to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Those verses we talked about last week, what's that look like? It simply resembles following and obeying Jesus in every area of your life. You want to know how you work out your faith? You know, want to know how you press that out through your life? You follow and obey Jesus in every area of your life. And so Paul here presents a very practical way that believers can do just that. They should shine as a light in the world. I'm going to share with you three things about how to shine or where you should shine as a light in this dark world. First of all, we shine as lights in our behavior. This is that area that probably all of us this week uh, uh, failed at on some level. So shine as lights in your behavior. Look there at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 14 here begins with the imperative, do all things. Not a suggestion, not, hey, if you get around to it, or if you'd like, or I think this would be good for you. Paul's saying here, if you want to work out your salvation, you want to put it to work in your life, here's what you do. Do all things without grumbling and disputes. Do all things without complaining and arguments. So what we see in these words here is simple. The Christian life is one of action. We're called to do something. We're not called to, to be passive. We're called to be active. And so what we looked at last week and discovered in verses 12 and 13 is that God's provision and salvation is to be coupled with our obedience as we work out what God has worked in. We're to put it to work in our lives. This morning, I hope you got up this and, and read your Bible. I hope many of you are reading through the scriptures this year with us. Reading through the Bible annually. We've been doing this together as a church about three years. I realize that sometimes when you get up and you open God's Word, it's a little bit harder to read. It's a little bit more trudgery. It's difficult to walk through some of the passages of Scripture. But when you do so, God speaks to you and you learn something. But what do you need to do with it then? You apply it. You put it to work in your life. That's what he's talking about here. In the Greek... The word all is positioned first in this sentence. The English translates it's a little different. It says do all things, but in the Greek New Testament, it's all do is the way it's worded. And so what it does this, it, by putting it first in the sentence, it's emphasizing that nothing is excluded. In other words, do all things, every single thing. Paul will tell us also to the Corinthians, he says, uh, that do all that you do. Work as unto the Lord, right? Everything in your life ought to be in that vein. The next word in this sentence is the verb do. It, it's in the present active tense, which means it's a continual action. 
So this is to be the believer's way of life, the way the Christian continually works out and expresses his salvation. How do you do that? You do all things for the glory of God. You do all things without grumbling and disputing. So what are you specifically to do? It's exactly what it says. Don't grumble and don't dispute. How many of you, and I'm not going to ask you to actually raise your hand, but just think about it. How many of you failed this week about grumbling and having some sort of dispute? Mark's confessed. Uh, he, he, he needed to confess. We, most of us who know Mark, we know he needs to confess that sin. I guarantee you all of us have, have failed in the area of grumbling. I was studying this text early this past week, and, and uh, something happened. I don't have a clue what it was, something minor. And I'm like, oh, that's a grumble. There's this grumbling there. And it's like, you know, you start, if, when you become aware of that, you really begin to realize how often we grumble and fuss and complain, and, and it's really whining. We want to walk around and say, you want some cheese with that wine? It's a dad joke. As Paul here is telling us to live all of life, to do everything you're called to do without grumbling and arguing with others. And when you think about that, that is a tall order. It's a tall order. In our flesh, it is an impossibility to do everything that we do without some sense of grumbling and complaining. Let's talk a little bit about this. Grumbling was one of the characteristics that marked Israel, right? You know the story of Israel. You've read through the Old Testament. Uh, what do we see from Israel in the Old Testament? Grumbling. I mean, you see it right there throughout the Exodus account. I mean, what happens in the early parts of the, of the story of Exodus? There in the first couple of chapters, you've got the people of God in Israel, in bondage for 400 years, crying out to God. God, deliver us. We're your people. You've promised the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you're going to deliver us. God, be our deliverer. Send someone. Well, God hears their prayer. He remembers his covenant with Abraham, and he sends Moses. You remember the story, the burning bush and all of that? Moses arrives on the scene, goes to Pharaoh, says, God has sent me, and he says to you, let my people go. Pharaoh laughs him off and says, I'll, show, make, a, I'll make a show of this. I'm going to increase the workload of the Israelites. He's like, you've got to make all the same bricks that you've been uh, ordered to make, but now I'm not going to provide any resources for you. What was the response of the Israelites? Grumbling and complaining. Moses, please leave. You're making our lives difficult. You know the story of the ten plagues. God finally delivers the people of Israel. They're moving now out of Egypt. They get to the banks of the Red Sea. God has done miracles on their behalf. Thousands of Egyptians have died in, in God's conquest of them to deliver his people. And, and so you would think they would believe God. They're standing with their heels on the Red Sea. And behind them is the, the Pharaoh and what's left of his army. All these chariots come against him. And they begin to grumble again to Moses. Did you bring us out here to kill us? God delivers them through parting the Red Sea. And you know the story. They get on the backside of that, they're traveling around, and, and now they're becoming consumed with security issues. They're becoming consumed with, I need water to drink, I can't find water anywhere. They're beginning to come, become consumed about food and grumbling, complaining. All the while, all this traveling for 40 years, you see them grumbling about different issues, never trusting God. And so what marks the nation of Israel, perhaps more than anything else, is this picture, this idea 
of grumbling and complaining, which leads to disputes. They even says, said many times, we would rather go back to Egypt and be a slave because there, and then they would embellish what they had. There we had food, we had leeks and, and, and vegetables and, and meat. We had everything that we needed. Yeah, you were also slaves. And I doubt the banqueting table was as wonderful as you remember. They grumbled and they complained. That is indicative of humanity. So grumblings here refer to the undercurrents that are often heard in whisperings and gossip. That's what you see in that Exodus account. That's what you see in other places throughout the story of the Bible. These grumblings lead to disputes. You see, undercurrents are dangerous in oceans. You guys are probably going to go to the beach if you haven't already this year. You're going to be heading out to Virginia Beach or Nags Head or maybe Myrtle Beach or somewhere else. But what do you do when you're at the beach? Especially, what do you do with your children? Don't get out too far. Make sure you're paying attention to the riptide. Why? Because we understand that the undercurrent of the ocean is dangerous. It can, like, it can actually, little by little, pull you out to sea, and in, when it's really, really going, pull you under. The same sort of undercurrent is dangerous in the church. It will pull you out, and it will suck you under. So this undercurrent, undercurrent is also dangerous to our witnesses, our witness as a believer, and so for this reason, Paul here calls upon believers to do all things without it, to not grumble, to not dispute. He knows full well how difficult Christian perseverance is. It's hard to be a Christian, right? It's hard to be on every single day. That's why we've all failed with grumbling this week. That's why we've all failed disputing and, and whining about different things. It's hard to be a Christian because we live in this case that we call the flesh, that constantly wants its own desires to be fed and to be met. We don't look to others, we look to ourselves. That's the default position of the flesh. And so Christian pers perseverance is difficult. Discipleship is not an easy road to travel. Pursuing holiness, giving generously, practicing hospitality, loving your spouse, loving your children appropriately, sharing the gospel with others, and all the other facets of Christian disciple could tempt one to grumble and complain. Because it's not easy. And yet we're called to do it. When a Christian's behavior is characterized by this sort of undercurrent, he or she is not fleshing out the life of Christ. We're just not. What did Jesus do and how did he respond when he was on trial? If you want to know how to live your life and how to respond to difficulties, watch Jesus in the Gospels when he's on trial and headed to the cross. I love how the gospel writers tell us he opened not his mouth. What would you have done? Uh, I'm the son of God. You probably shouldn't crucify me because my father's bigger than you, and it's not going to be good. Uh, you shouldn't crucify me because I didn't do anything, or I really don't like those guys anyway. I mean, we would be trying to weasel out of a situation, or we would be complaining back to the father. I want you to know this morning that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Bible tells us that he's sweating drops of blood, he's not fussing to the Father about his situation. God, why have you put me in this? No, he's agonizing over what he's about to do, but he willingly did it. Never one time did he complain, grumble, or fuss. It was unfair, but it was what God had called him to do. So grumblings and disputes are simply part of a common language 
of the dark culture in which we live. So rather than living a life marked by those grumblings and disputes, yours should be marked by joy as you rejoice in all things. I didn't say you're happy about everything. I didn't say you love everything and like all the situations in your life, but you can find joy in those because you know God's walking with you through the difficulties that life brings. And so this is the contrast that Paul is making. The Christian should shine as bright as a full moon against the backdrop of a night's sky. Hugh McIntosh put it this way. A genuine Christian ought to be as distinguishable among his fellows as is a civilized man among savages. They ought to be able to see the difference in your life. So how distinguishable distinguishable is your Christian witness? People look at you, they interact with you in the office or the neighborhood or the school, wherever you interact with other people. Do they see a Christian witness Or do they see a veil of Christianity with a lot of darkness underneath? D.A. Carson sums up all of this. He says, Christian contentment stands out in a selfish, whining, self-pitying world. That's the world we live in. So, we shine as lights in our behavior. Let's move a step further. We shine as lights in being. Moving on to verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So verse 15 here provides the goal of Paul's exhortation, what he's calling us to do. The Philippian church, in other words, is to refine their practice so that their gospel witness may flourish. They're to continually refine that. This is God's purpose for them. He says that you may be, right? That you may be blameless. You may be innocent. You may be without blemish. The verb be here, according to Ralph Martin, can more precisely be rendered, show yourselves. So what what Paul's saying here is, is, as you're shining as lights, show yourself blameless. Show yourself innocent. Show yourself without a blemish in your life. Allow your life to press out the life of Jesus Christ. So we're to shine as light simply in our being, who we are, as it pertains to the life of Jesus within us. And and we see this in other parts of Scripture. What does Proverbs 4.23 say? Keep your heart or watch over your heart or guard your heart, depending on what translation you have. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. This verse and verses like it tell us, call us to this sort of uh, living. They reveal that what is on the inside of a person personifies who that person is, and it will inevitably be revealed. Here's what I know about Christianity. You can only fake it so long until others begin to figure it out. You can only fake it that your marriage is great until it begins to be apparent to others. You can only fake that you're walking with God until it really becomes apparent that you're not walking with God because of the choices that you're making, the decisions you're making, and and all of the things in your life. Who you are on the inside will always be pressed out through your life. That's why the Word of God tells us to guard our hearts, to not allow anything else into our lives. Now, I'm not talking about losing your salvation or anything like that, but when we allow sinful, worldly things to, to, to permeate into our life, that takes up residence, and it begins to impact how we live. And so in our being, we want to shine as lights. We want to keep Jesus at the core of who we are. 
And so in light of the internal strife that's present within the church, which we talked about, Paul here is calling the church and the believers who make up the church to purge out anything and everything that is fueling the grumbling and the disputing and everything else that's going on. These were present in the church because they were present in the members. You know, we're only as holy as our membership is. We're only as good, really, as the weakest member of our church. We're only as evangelistic as those in our church who are not very evangelistic. We're not an address. You know that, right? Red Lane Baptist Church may meet at 2095 Red Lane Road, but Red Lane Baptist is not the brick and mortar we're setting in. It's the people who comprise the church, the temple of God. And so we're a people who are called to be holy. We're called to live out of the life of Christ within us. So instead of being marked by grumbling and disputes, the believers were to be blameless, as Paul says. Their reputations were to be above reproach. They were to live in such a way that no one could point a finger of criticism toward them, that they couldn't lay a finger or a hand on them. They were to be innocent or pure. They were to be innocent as doves and about what is evil. The term was used in the first century literature to speak of undiluted wine or metals that contain no weakening alloys. That's what your life is to be, completely pure. The purest of pure. The life of Jesus with nothing else mixed in. That's what your Christian life ought to be. I was reading this morning, and some of you did as well, in 2 Kings, what was it, 15, 16, and 17. And what you see there in, I believe it was, well, we read how uh, the northern ten tribes of Israel were conquered and, and taken off by Assyria. We also read how Judah kept continuing. But in that, and I think it was the nation of Judah, if I remember correctly, is that the new king who came upon the scene didn't walk in the ways of his father. He didn't live out what he did. In fact, that's what most of these kings did, is they kind of they um, did their own thing. And even when some of them would walk somewhat faithfully, they still held on to some of the things of the world. You see, what was going on in the nation of Israel and Judah there is that they wanted to put one foot in heaven and keep one foot in the world. They wanted to walk both roads of life, and that is an impossibility. God hates that. He told the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3 that I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I would rather vomit you out of my mouth. You are despicable in my sight. We are called to walk a single path. We're to be innocent and blameless. We're to be without blemish, he says. There's to be no faults in our lives. We're to live without faultless inconsistencies. But thankfully, Paul here is not describing mere behavior or, or to strive toward behavioral modification. He's not calling for that. As believers in Christ, they had been made positionally. Think about this. When you came to know Jesus, positionally, you were made blameless. Positionally, you have been made innocent. You have no sin that are condemning you before a holy God. You've been made blemish, blemishless. Is that what you would say? Without blemish. Let's say it that way. That's who you are positionally. Now you've got to walk that out in your life. But it's not, hey, try hard, strive hard. No, Paul is calling them to lean in to the being that's in them, the life of Jesus there inside their hearts, inside their lives, and allow that to be pressed out through their daily living. 
contrast that's presented in this verse, look at it, what he says, verse 15. You're to be these three things in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights. You notice the contrast. So they live in this crooked and twisted generation, and against that backdrop of a dark culture, they shine as lights in the world. It's interesting that Paul instructs them to shine rather than entreat. Have you ever noticed that as you read through this text? Paul doesn't say, hey, you're living in a dark world. It's difficult. It's not the life of Jesus. You're going to be tempted to sin. You're going to be tempted to do your own thing. And so the things of this culture are going to tempt the things of your flesh, and it's going to be a difficult road to walk. So in other, rather than doing that and running the risk of failing, don't go and try to live this out. Rather, retreat. That's not what Paul says at all. He says, in the world. Elsewhere, the Bible tells us to be in, but not to be of the world. So we're to be in the world. But what we want to do many times, too often in Christian circles, is we would rather build up walls and insulate and isolate rather than build bridges to engage the world in which we live. Anybody live in a convent? That's the right word, right? Convent, compound. Anybody got walls around their house? You insulated yourself off from the wall? Anybody not have TV or cable? I know some of you don't. You're super religious people. It's a joke, by the way. It's a joke. That's what we want to do. We should never strive to insulate and isolate ourselves from the world. Paul didn't do that. The apostles didn't do that. Instead, they built bridges to engage the world around them. Here's what we ought to do as, as, as Christian families, Christian parents. Obviously, we want to protect our children. We want to uh, watch over who our kids are hanging out with. I get all that. I'm for that. But what if we looked at it a, just a little bit different? Yeah, little Susie runs a risk hanging with a certain girl who lives down the street and yes, she might be a negative influence, but what if we engaged her and her family so that we could influence them? And obviously, if it goes too far and it becomes a, a true danger to your child, you pull them back in because you, you don't want to run the risk that they, they go in the wrong direction. But again, we want to build bridges into people's lives, not walls to isolate and insulate ourselves from them. So we want to shine as lights in our being, allowing our lives to be contrasted against the backdrop of this crooked and twisted generation in which we live. There's a third thing. Shine as lights in belief. Verse 16 continues the imperative. Holding fast to the word of life. The Philippians here were to hold fast, to hold it tight. The, the term means to hold firmly. It also carries the idea of holding out or holding up offering it to someone else. So believers are to remain firm in their adherence to the truth of the gospel. We should never waver in what we believe about God's word. We're to hold it like a torchbearer would grasp a hold of a, a, a torch and securely carry the light. Never allowing ourselves to be daunted by the difficulties that come with living this life. But at the same time, we're to share that truth with others. I mean, what do you do with light? You take it and you help others to find the way. 
So we hold firmly to the light, but we share that light with others. That's the idea that Paul's driving at here. We're to shine as a light in our belief as we believe the Word of God and as we share the Word of God with others. And so we see here Paul's deep concern about the brothers and sisters in the church whom he loved dearly. Just like anyone who invests himself in people or a, a movement or an organization, he doesn't want to see it fall and, and come to nothing. So if we go on to verse 17, he says, Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. Why does he say that? It's because of what he ends verse 16 with. I don't want to run in vain. I, I'm willing to offer my life and give it as a sacrifice, but I don't want to run in vain. So let's rejoice together. Let's, let, let's strive together to live this out. Let's believe the word of God. Let's share the word of God. Let's allow this to bubble up and, and out of our lives and how we live and what we do so that we don't run in vain, that your faith is not in vain, that my investment's not in vain. Let's shine his lights in our belief. Again, looking up to the heavens on a clear night is pretty remarkable. I'm oftentimes, um, we used to watch Survivor for years, and COVID kind of, I don't know if it's coming back on or not, but I've always a little, been a little bit jealous when you watch Survivor because they're out in the middle of absolutely nowhere on some deserted island that's in the middle of Southeast Asia or somewhere out in the ocean, and, and you look up to the heavens, and what the camera shows you is, is a night sky I've never seen. And I've been in, I thought, some desolate places out in the, in the woolly woods of, of north central Arkansas or the woolly woods of uh, Colorado and, and different places like that. But I've never seen a night sky like some of the times we see on TV. I'm a little jealous of that. But I love to look up at the sky. And when we do that, even when we do it with our kids, we get to point out some cool things. Get to show them Venus. I remember as a child standing at my grandparents' back door, and as the sun was setting to the west, you would always, is it, it's, it's Venus or it's Mars, I forget which one, but you would always see that, what looks like a bright star, but it's really a planet. Probably looks different in Arkansas than it does in Virginia. Much more beautiful in our, I'm just kidding, it's joke, 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 joke. When you're out there at night and you're looking up, sometimes you get lucky and you see a meteorite shooting across the horizon. I remember we were doing this one time, and a questioning came back of, um, why can't we see stars in the daytime? You ever thought about that question? Why can't we see stars in the daytime? There's too much light. You can only see it against the backdrop of the darkness. And we live in a dark world, and what Paul's saying here is that we're to shine as lights and allow the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus that's present within you as a believer, to shine in brilliance and glory so that everyone can see. What's your life look like? You shining as a light? Does your life bear witness to the life of the Lord Jesus in your life? We live in a dark world. And I know it seems at times to be getting darker and darker. I think at times we may even struggle with this idea. And, and so we want to retreat, like I just mentioned. We want to retreat to spaces that are lighted. God's words informs us on what to do. Three questions as we walk through this have been answered for us. Question of what? What are we to do? He says, shine as lights in your behavior. 
What are we to do? I, we get that question from kids all the time. What are, we, what are we supposed to do? And then we get the follow-up question, why? Why should I do this? Paul answers it. We're to do it because it's in our being. It's who we are in Christ. We are the light of the world. How can you, Jesus even says this in Matthew 5, how can you or why would you put a light on the shelf and stick a basket over it? It makes no sense. You put the light on the shelf so that it illuminates the darkness. That's why we do this. That's what Paul's saying here. What? We shine in our behavior. What? Why? We shine in our being. How are we to do this? We shine as we hold fast to the Word of God and share it with others. We want to be influencers, not influenced people. But you cannot shine as a light in your behavior without first shining in your being, which begins in the belief through belief. Your belief in the word and trust in the word of God. This morning, if you faith into Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. There was a moment in your life where Jesus changed you. And the essence of who Jesus is became a present, constant uh, reality in your life. And so you are in the, a position to live out of the life and the light that is within you, and you can shine in this dark world. But this morning, if you're sitting here watching us online and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can't do anything that we've talked about because there's nothing on the inside but darkness. An empty vacuum, an empty hole that was made and formed for one person, and it won't be found in this world. I joked the other day, I think it was in a small group a week or so ago, I might have said it from this platform before, but the great theologian's audio adrenaline, dating myself with my Christian music, Steve. Yeah, well, they're still around. They're a little different these days. But audio adrenaline, one of my favorite songs that they used to sing back in the 90s was God Shaped Hope. I love that song because I believe it's great theology that each and every one of us are created in the image and likeness of God, right? We know that. And so because we're created in his image and in his likeness, nothing else can fit that mold. You can cram as much money as you want to in your life. It'll never satisfy you. You can cram as much, as much family in your life. It will never satisfy you. Recreation, uh, sexuality, alcohol, drugs, uh, uh, running to prosperity, running to the next career move, whatever it is, it will never satisfy you. Why? Because you were made for one person. And his name is Jesus. So you can't live this life out that we're talking about because the life is not in you. This morning, the greatest need in your life and the decision you need, you need to make is to put your faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. We're going to have a time of response. You can do that this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus and you want to live what we've been talking about better, you respond as well. You don't have to come forward, but if you want to, man, the altar is open. You just come down here and kneel and pray Spin around in your seat, take a knee, whatever you need to do, whatever posture you feel like the Lord is leading you to take, we need to do business with God when he speaks.